Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Right. We're going to... Um, I, I, I've noticed that we tend to think of our lives in terms of stories. I don't know if you've noticed that. When you, when, um, when you want to get to know someone, you ask them, what is your story? You know, ask them... You know, where, where do you come from? What is your story? You know, and they, they tell you a story to sort of give you an idea of who they are and, and where they come from. And um, I, I remember speaking a few times to Honda, um, who's in the Randa congregation. She's uh, a, a professional counselor and counsels a lot of people. And, and one of the main ways that she, that, that she counsels people is she she. She, she uses stories, and, and specifically she, she talks about um, a problem story and a solution story. Uh, and what she means by that is that we come to God with our problem story. All of us have problems. All of us have challenges. And our story is a story you know, containing lots of problems. And Jesus comes with his story, which is a solution story. And where those two stories get together and meet, that's where the miracles happen. And uh, I just want us to look at a, a well-known portion of Scripture in John chapter 4, uh, the, the famous portion of um, the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, I want us to look at it from that perspective, from the perspective of, of these two stories, and, and, and just look at how her problem story and Jesus' solution story come together and what, what happens there and how powerful it is. And at the end, I'm going to have us do a little exercise, hopefully if I have time, <laughs> if we have time, we're going to do a little exercise where we're going to do that as well. Think about our problem story, Jesus' solution story, and how they come together and maybe share some of that story with one another. Okay, so let's, let's read that portion in, uh, in John 4. From verse 4, it says, uh, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, um, just, just notice that, that place where it says he had to go through Samaria. That's going to become important later on. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone uh, into town to buy food. Uh, I've heard someone say, does it take 12 people to buy food for 13 people? So it uh, tells you something, you know, Jesus sent all of them into town, you know. He wanted some alone time with, and he knew probably this woman's going to come, and they might not be able to handle it, you know. They might not be able to overcome their Jewish prejudice to the, to the Samaritans. Um, so he sent them to go and buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, <clears throat> she is even surprised, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And drank from it himself, as did uh, also his sons and his livestock. She's asking all the right questions, you know. Where are you going to get this water? Are you greater than our father 
Jacob, you know. We, looking back, can sort of see that those are really good questions, if only she had the right answers to them. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water I will give them, uh, will gi- uh, I give, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't uh, get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) It's interesting the the changes in the conversation, the topic of conversations um, that that happen here. We'll we'll, we'll come back to that in in a moment. You know, so she says, I I can see you're a prophet. And you can see she's a bit uncomfortable with what he's just revealed about her. So she tries to get religious on him, you know, and and she says, um, uh, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but... You Jews say that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So she brings up the, the, the sort of the hot you know, theological debate of the time. You know, Should we worship on Mount Gerizim where the uh, Samaritans had built a rebel temple? Or should we mount, worship on Mount Zion where the, the Jewish temple was, was built? You can see she's a bit uncomfortable talking about herself. You know? She wants to sort of steer the conversation in other directions. Woman, he replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what uh, you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet the time is coming and, now, um, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit. And in truth, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, uh, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So, Lord, we just thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll just come, Lord, and just open your word to us and minister your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray, Lord, that that you will show us, Lord, how your word applies to our lives and come and apply to our hearts. And come and change us. Lord, even as we heard uh, before that your word is a two-edged sword, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray, Lord, that you'll come and cut away anything that needs to be cut away in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, I want to talk about the problem story, solution story. And then I actually want to give an example. And then I want us to talk about your story. So here we go. Uh, First, the problem story. This woman... Um, her life sort of revolves around something that I think all of us can relate to, and that's thirst. Thirst, okay? Uh, In more ways than she realizes. And she comes to this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the rebel temple had been built, 
and Mount um, Alba, I think, where Sakar, well, the, the city was, we were about 1.2 kilometers from one another. So Jacob's well was, was on, on Mount Gerizim as well. So she had to walk that 1.2 kilometers. And she comes by noon. Now, if you're going to walk, you know, a fair distance with some heavy water on your shoulder, you're going to not come, you know, during the heat of the day at noontime like she was. But um, you can imagine now, you know, probably some of these uh, husbands that were not her husband, you know, belonged to some of the other women who came in the morning and in the evening in the cool of the day to come and get water. So she was probably not quite welcome, you know, in their midst, you know, at that stage. So she chose rather to come at, the, uh, at noonday. But she came to get water, even though it was difficult, even though it was the wrong time of the day, even though the other women didn't want her around in the morning, in the, in, uh, in the cool of the morning or the evening. She came because she was thirsty. And all of us can relate to that because all of us have a thirst. Um, all of us have needs that need to be met. Um, and, and those can be physical needs, like physical hunger or thirst, like physical sickness, um, whatever. Uh, it can be psychological needs, like the need for community, the need for, for friendship, the need for love uh, and affection. Uh, it can be spiritual needs. Um, all kinds of needs that we that that, that we come uh, to the Lord with. Now, um, what she uh, what she doesn't realize is that her need uh, goes a lot deeper than she realizes. Um, she she comes, walks all this way in the heat of the day, and she meets G- uh, Jesus there. And Jesus also thirsty because he's also been walking. And what's interesting to me is he asks her for water. And, and what, the first thing that he shows her is that he can relate to her thirst. Uh, and, and that's amazing to me about God, that God became human, took on human form, and he came to share in our thirst. He came to share in our need, and he can relate to it. He shares in it. He, he understands it. He experienced it himself. So the first thing that he uh, does is he says to this woman, please give me some water to drink, showing her I can, I can relate to your to your need, I can relate to your thirst, I can relate to your, to your problem. And, and the Lord can do the same for all of us. He relates to our, to our needs. But then something interesting happens um, <laughs> that two, you know, sort of abrupt and seemingly random changes of subject. Firstly, you know, when Jesus tells her about, you know, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the living water I give will not, never thirst again. She said, please, give me that water. So that wouldn't have to come here in the heat of the day to draw water. And he says something that seems like a complete, a, sort of a sudden and a rude change of topic. He says, go and fetch your husband. Okay? And later on, when Jesus reveals that he knows she's had five husbands and the, one she, uh, the man she has now is not a husband, she seems to change the topic. She says, you know, the whole thing about worship, you know, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. So she tries to change the, the subject. But what I want you to see is that both of those seeming changes in subject are actually not, not changes in subject. Jesus was not really changing the subject. When he said, go and fetch your husband, he was not changing the subject. What he wanted her to see was that she had a... An external thirst, which she tried to fill with the water, but she had an even more important internal thirst. And what, what he was saying was, when I'm talking about living water, what I'm talking about is soul satisfaction. How, what do you use to satisfy your soul? Okay, And she, he, he, he was saying to her, 
What you're trying to, the, the, the thirst you're trying to quench with men, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. And then she tries to switch the subject to worship. And Jesus is happy to go on with that subject because actually she's trying to change the subject, but she actually doesn't change the subject at all. Because whatever you use to meet your greatest need is what you worship. That is what you worship. And um, it's interesting, I, I, I read once a, a guy who's a storyteller and author, he said that any good story, your protagonist, your main character goes on an external journey of sorts, but also on an internal journey. There's a journey to some place on the outside, but there's also a journey on the inside. And in a good story, the external journey and the internal journey come together and they actually get resolved together. And what Jesus was trying to show her here is that her external journey and her internal journey were actually the same. That her external thirst for physical water and her internal thirst for love and affection sort of mirrored one another. And um, there's an old saying, sort of psychological saying, unmet needs motivate. Have you ever heard that? Unmet needs motivate. Our greatest unmet needs motivate us. And, and that's what we see in her life. Now, I don't know where, how she got to this place, you know, what her story was, how she got to this place where she had this deep internal need for love and affection. Um, now, I was wondering about it and, and, and thinking, you know, wouldn't it be ironic? Now, th- this is speculation, so this is not scripture. This is any speculation. But wouldn't it be interesting if she had had, maybe she didn't have a dad, Maybe her dad was even Jewish. Maybe, you know, that's part of the reason, you know, that would have been nice and ironic, you know, if she she says to Jesus, a Jewish man, you know, why do you speak to me, a Samaritan woman? You know, but what if her her dad was Jewish? He had a sort of an affair with her mother who was Samaritan. But then, you know, when she got pregnant, you know, he, he dumped them, sort of abandoned them, you know, doesn't want anything to do with Samaritans and sort of goes off and she never had a dad. And, and now she has this need for Love and affection from a man. And she's going from one man to the next, you know. She, she has this internal thirst, this raging internal thirst for love and affection. And, and she thinks, okay, if I, if I just get the right man. Okay, I didn't have a dad who could sort of love me, but if I just get a man, you know. And she marries and she thinks, okay, this guy's going to quench my thirst. And the problem is it leads to disappointment, deep uh, disappointment um, in her heart Um, and you know clearly she was quite beautiful I mean if if you can sort of seduce you know five other sort of women's husbands and get them she was probably quite quite a looker you know (laughs) maybe she even dressed the part you know those those biblical dresses lo and behold you know (laughs) I'm sure she did I mean she, she was just like she had to, she was willing to work, do the work, you know, walk that 1.2 kilometers in the heat of the day to go and get the physical water to quench her physical thirst. You know, she was willing to do the work, you know, of seduction, you know, to get the men that she thought will quench her psychological thirst, her thirst for love. And um, her unmet needs, her unmet need for, for male affection was motivating her, driving her, driving her life. Because she thought, that's the solution to my problem. I'm thirsty for love, for male affection. I need to get men to marry me. I need to um, seduce men. 
And um, the, the problem is every time it led to disappointment. Now, the word disappointment is not used there in the text, but, I mean, you can see it quite clearly. The fact that she's had five husbands and the one she's with now is not a husband means that the first five didn't do it for her. The first five didn't quench that thirst that she thought they would. It didn't meet that need that she thought they would. So she got married and, you know, no one gets married to, to get divorced. She thought, okay, this guy is going to, you know, he's, he's nice, you know. He likes me. He's in love with me. Um, he thinks I'm, I'm gorgeous. He thinks I'm, uh, I'm the best thing since sliced bread even though I don't know whether they had sliced bread then. Um, and uh, he's going he's gonna to meet that need. He's going to quench that thirst that I have in my heart. Only to find that he didn't. Maybe he was thirsty too, and maybe she didn't quench his thirst. But anyway, she looked to him, and it, it didn't work. So she said, oh, stupid me. I married too young. I was too inexperienced. I didn't know how to choose the right husband, you know. I chose the wrong guy, <laughs> you know. Let me find another one who will actually quench my thirst. I remember hearing a story by Joyce Meyer where um, she and her husband were, were having conflict and, and sort of arguing and fighting. And um, she went, you know, to pray and said, God, please sort Dave out, you know. My husband, you know, look how much trouble he's giving me. He's fighting with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm so upset with him. And she was raving and venting to God and, and going on in prayer, you know, just like David often does in the Psalms. So, you know, you can do that. It's, it's quite fine. She was venting to God. And, and she says she heard God saying, but Dave is not the problem. And she says, I distinctly remember thinking, well, then who is? <laughs> <laughs> And why I remember that story is I thought, that is so true. We all do that. <laughs> we all always think it's someone else's problem. So she thought, okay, you know, just get the new husband. Got him. And then, oh, man, I can't believe it. You know, I thought this, my first husband didn't quench my thirst. I thought the second one, surely, you know. And, and again, I, I can't believe it. I, I'm, I'm, I've the, I'm the person with the worst luck in the world. I again chose the wrong husband, you know. That's the problem, you know. Not me, that's the problem. It's clearly the husband. So let me get another one, number three, and number four, and number five. And eventually, when Jesus meets with her, she's given up on marriage completely. She's not even getting married. And she's still thirsty. And um, so often we, we make that mistake. We think, we, we realize, we register a need, we register a thirst, and we think we know what's going to quench that thirst. And we try and get it, we work for it. We try and deserve it, we try to earn it, and it doesn't satisfy, and we're left with that disappointment. But not only the disappointment, but with the bad report. I mean, the reason, like I said, why she came at the, uh, you know, in the heat of the day at noon, instead of the, the, the cool of the morning or the evening, is because she was an outcast. She was probably hated in that community despised she had a bad report so in that's her problem story now into this comes jesus with his solution story and um he he does some interesting things he he breaks through a lot of barriers social barriers jew samaritan you know the racism between them religious barriers moral barriers gender barriers all kinds of stuff he just sort of reaches over them and reaches out to this woman and says to her, firstly, not in so many words, but 
bit subtly, he implies, you don't understand your thirst. And that's why when she asked for the living water, he says, go and get your husband. Because he wants her to see what her thirst really is. Because she doesn't realize that. Um, it's interesting here in Jeremiah, because when Jesus talks about living water, he says, whoever drinks of the living water that I give will never thirst again. But what is that living water? Now, the word living water could just mean flowing water. You know, the water from a spring or, or, a, or a river or something. But it came spiritually to denote... Um, Water that, that is, and I mean, you can exp- imagine in a desert, you know, water is, is very important. And to get fresh water, drinkable water was, 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 was important. Um, but it came to denote God and, and, and him as the water of life that gives life. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And... That's exactly, I'm sure Jesus had that scripture in mind when he used the imagery of, of living water. And that's why it's so telling that she asks, you know, where will you get this living water? And in this text in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God says, I am the spring of living water. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water I give it will become inside of them a spring welling up to eternal life. Uh, are you greater than our father Abraham? Well, when Jesus says, I'm the spring of living water, he's actually claiming to be much greater than her father Abraham. Um, he's claiming to be God. To give that living water. But he shows her that, that her need, what, what a real need is. Um, he, he relates to her thirst. He exposes her, her real thirst. And then he proposes the right solution, the living water. Now, so often we make this exact mistake that the, this, the, the, the Israelites had made and that the Samaritan woman has made. And this is, this is very important. You need to get this. Russell Brand. I don't know if you know the comedian Russell Brand. He's got like long hair and a beard. and Quite a funny guy, but irrev- quite irreverent. Very irreverent, but very funny as well. And many years ago, he was a drug addict. And he used to use quite hard drugs, you know, coke and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, serious, serious drugs. And, you know, eventually... I don't know the whole story, but he went to a rehab, he got off the drugs, and now he, he tries to help other people also get off, off drugs as far as he can. And, and, he, and he once wrote an article, that, which is actually very insightful, in which he, he tells, tries to tell people, you know, how serious drug addiction is and how it works. Uh, and he said, you know, you know my, my, I, I can fall tomorrow. Anytime. I'm so vulnerable, you know, as, a, as, a, as an addict, an ex-addict. Even though I've been clean for years, I'm so vulnerable, I can, fall, I can fall tomorrow. But another thing that he said is, he said that people struggle to understand why addicts battle to get off drugs. And the re- one of the main reasons is, he said it this way, alcohol and drugs are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Alcohol and drugs are my solution. Alcohol and drugs are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Alcohol and drugs are my solution. And so often, the biggest problem in our lives and the things that hurt us the most and the things that we struggle the most to get rid of are things that we use as a solution, just like this woman used men as a solution. And what she didn't realize was that her cure was worse than the disease. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that very often our cure is worse than a disease. 
what we will think will cure our condition, will quench our thirst, that, that cure ends up being worse than the disease. And you can just imagine everything that this woman went through with the men that she, the different men that she married, all the, the heartache that she ended up with. And so often we struggle to get rid of the problems in our lives because we don't realize that those problems are actually a solution. Something that we're trying to use as a solution. Something that we're trying to use to quench a thirst in our souls. Something we're trying to use to get soul satisfaction. And one of the things that God, Jesus wants us to realize is that, yes, we have thirst. But if we go and try and find soul satisfaction anywhere except in Him, the spring of living water the cure will be worse than the disease. Those waters, you'll, you'll get thirsty again. In fact, those waters will not only not quench your thirst, they will inflame your thirst. And you'll get addicted to them. You'll, you'll end up worshipping them like this woman. That's why they ended up talking about, about worship. You'll end up worshipping them. Um, whatever meets meet your greatest need is what you worship. So, Jesus offers her the, the living water. And notice what he says. If you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. If you, if, he says, actually, what, if you knew the gift of God and, whoever, and, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I just want you to notice the, the difference here. I mean, she had to work to get the physical water, walk in the heat of the day. She had to work, you know, to seduce those men, you know, every time to try and, Get them to quench her soul thirst. But here Jesus offers her something that she doesn't have to work for. Gift is different from a reward. How can you fail to receive a reward? By not working for it, right? If you don't work for it, you're not going to receive the reward, okay? How can you fail to receive a gift? One of the ways is by insisting on working for it. A reward is something you work for, something you receive after you've worked for it. A gift is something you receive after someone else has worked for it. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? It's the living water he's talking about. And we know in John's gospel that refers to the Holy Spirit. So how did Jesus work for this gift that he was going to give her so that she doesn't have to work for it? It says later on in, in John's Gospel, um, first it says, um, just before um, this in ch- uh, chapter 19, it says, Jesus actually hanging on the cross says, I'm thirsty. And it's amazing how Jesus doesn't only sit with a Samaritan woman on the well and say to her, I'm thirsty, physically thirsty, but how Jesus at the end of the Gospel experiences the ultimate thirst, the, the, a cosmic thirst, a thirst of being cut off from the spring of living water, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A thirst that is not just a physical thirst, but a psychological, a spiritual thirst. All the thirst in the world rolled into one. Jesus experienced that thirst on the cross. So that she would need, not need to be th- go thirsty for the rest of her life. And then comes the... Um, 
the Roman soldier. It says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And what's interesting about uh, John, the, the evangelist, or the beloved disciple, um, he often takes literal history and then sh- shows how God is using it symbolically. One example, in, in, uh, you can go and check it in, in John chapter 13, I think it's verse 30. Uh, they, they're eating the Last Supper, and the beloved disciple is sitting next to Jesus, and he says, you know, who will betray you? And Jesus says, whoever I, you know, he takes a piece of bread, says, you know, dips it in the soup or whatever, the food, and he says, whoever I give this to, it's him, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot. And it says, and, Jesus, and Judas immediately, after, you know, taking it and eating it, immediately he left, and then it says, and it was dark. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Kirsten has this new thing that she does that I find very funny. Kirsten's our 12-year-old daughter, you know, and I don't know where she picked it up. It was probably at school. But, um, you know, when Justin says or does something wrong, she does this little sound effect, dun, 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 which is sort of ominous, you know, something went wrong here. So, so you can sort of hear, you know, when you read that, and immediately Judas went out, and it was dark, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> If you want sound effects. <laughs> so he went out from the light into the dark. You know, away from Jesus who is the light, into the dark, into the night. And um, here, um, the beloved disciple does the same thing. I mean, what happened here was literal. I mean, uh, the, the, this is a Roman soldier. He's just doing his job. He knows there was a law in those times. If you didn't, if you had to... If you had a captive or you had a, someone you had to execute, there was a law. If, if you failed to, in your duty to do that, to either keep them captive or execute them properly, then whatever their sentence was comes upon you. Okay? That was actual Roman law. You know? And um, so he, <laughs> when you had to execute someone, you made, you made pretty sure that they were dead because your life depended on it. So he knew, you know, if I stick a spear into someone's side and blood and water flows, it means their, their heart has stopped beating quite a while ago and they are properly dead. More to it. Okay, they, they're good and dead. So, so I mean, so, there are many skeptics who try and, you know, say, okay, but yeah, there were resurrection sightings, but Jesus was never really properly dead. I mean, I, you, you cannot get past this. Does it make sense that a Roman soldier tasked with executing him knowing that his life depended on him, would leave it up to chance. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that they would do, you know, to make sure that someone is medically dead, to make sure that they don't die. Uh, so you, you cannot get past the fact that Jesus actually really did die, literally dead. He was medically dead, okay? And it's that same Jesus who rose from the dead. And uh, at the end of the gospel, you know, invites Thomas, doubting Thomas, to put his hand in, into the hole in his side to say, that hole's still there, but I'm alive. But here... John also shows how God uses it symbolically. Okay? Jesus' blood is flowing through his death. His blood is flowing, which, which cleanses us from our sin. But there's also water flowing, representing the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the work that Jesus had to do to earn the gift of living water so that this woman would never have to thirst again? He literally had to die on the cross. That's hard work. That's pretty hard work. And Jesus was willing to do that for her. But you know what? Jesus was willing to do that for each one of us. So that each one of us can come and have our deepest thirst in our hearts and souls quenched by his living water. He was literally willing to die to quench our thirst. 
That is how much he loves us. That's how much he loved her. And that's how much he loves us. But that's not all. Um, those first few verses, that first verse, verse 4, it says, And Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, yeah, if you were going from Galilee, so you had Galilee up in the north, and you had Samaria in the middle, and then you had Judea with Jerusalem as the capital where the temple was, sort of more towards the south of Israel. And the shortest road from Galilee to Jerusalem, and, and all Jews, Jewish males, had to make that trip a couple of times a year to go to the different festivals at the temple, is through Samaria. But the Jews hated the Samarians. Even so, most Jews still took, chose to take the shortcut through Samaria to Jerusalem, to the temple. But some who were like really seriously racist and seriously hated the Samaritans, they chose to go like over the Jordan to the Transjordan, sort of to the Gentile region, down South Cross, back to the, over the Jordan. It was a much longer route. It took quite a few days um, longer. But, but that route was also there. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it wasn't geographically necessary for him to go through Samaria. The other alternative route was there. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Think about it this way. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He ends up at that well, sitting on the well at noonday, at exactly the time. No one else will come to get water, but this woman, because of her situation, comes to get water and to her she comes and she expects to find no one at the well like she always does because she exactly comes at the hottest time of the day so that she would find no one and there's a weird guy sitting on the edge of the well and then Vrachtach, I mean he's a Jew but he asks her for water he even talks to her and he's breaking through all these cultural barriers and gender barriers and moral barriers even you know he's just breaking through them and just ignoring it and, and still talking to her you know and he doesn't seem to hate her and to her, it seems like a chance encounter, just a random encounter with a stranger. But to Jesus, it was a divine appointment because he had to go through Samaria, not because there was no other route, but because he had to meet this woman. Here's the thing I want you to see. God, the Father, is constantly busy writing Jesus into your story. God, the Father, is constantly busy writing Jesus into your story. God, the Father, is constantly busy writing your story in such a way that your problem story collides with Jesus' solution story. Your human story is swallowed up by his divine story. Your story that, if you extrapolate it, would have a very tragic ending that it connects and collides with and is swallowed up by his story that has a happy ending. Your story of thirst is constantly being written in such a way that it connects with Jesus' story of living water that quenches that thirst. Isn't that good news? I think that's great news. There are so many things that look like chance meetings to us that are actually divine appointments. Ways in which God is busy writing Jesus into your story. Writing salvation into your story. Um, I heard the story, and some of you might know this, of, of St. Augustine. 
um, is, is known as the best theologian between Paul and the reformers. I mean, Paul was a great, um, probably the greatest theologian of the early church, um, along with Jesus himself. And if you look at Paul's story, it's also interesting. You also have a problem story and God's solution story colliding. And God having written it that way. And, and Jesus' solution story swallowing up his problem story and, and turning his life around. Uh, and, you know, the, the reformers, Martin Luther and those guys who started the Reformation in the 16, 16th century. Same thing. Martin Luther was a monk, you know trying to find salvation, earn salvation through his own strength. And then God just sort of changing his life by writing again Jesus into his story and his salvation into his story. But St. Augustine is known as, as the greatest theologian between Paul and the, and, the, and the Reformers. And he was a very bright guy. From the beginning, he had brothers, and he had, his mother's name was Monica, and he was very extremely bright, good-looking. I mean, he had everything going for him. His mother was a Christian. I think his father was not. And uh, he lived quite a wild life. He, he knew the truth. He knew the Bible because his mother had taught it to him. But he constantly rebelled against it. Uh, in fact, he's infamous for praying the Libertine Prayer. You know what the Libertine Prayer is? Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> so he, he ran after pleasure, after women, after fame, after riches, all that kind of stuff. And, and um, sometimes he had a bit of a struggle in his conscience about it, but then he just prayed, Lord, make me chase, but not yet, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, one day he was, he, he, you know, the Lord was wrestling with him, um, and, and he was sort of in a garden. I can't remember what he was doing. I think he was sort of having a bit of a struggle, and he, I think he just actually read the Bible and then sort of thrown it aside or something like that and walking through the garden. And then he heard so, sort of kids in the, in the you know, house next door chanting uh, in, in Latin. I don't know the Latin, but, but basically what they said is take up and eat, take, uh, take and read, take up and read, take up and read. And um, he knew, you know, he had to go and take up the Bible. So he went back to the Bible, picked it up, and he opened it. And he opened it at Romans 13 verse 14, which says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no room for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And right there, God, boom, you know, changed his heart. You know, that's when Jesus came. And he actually felt being clothed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and he no longer made provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And, and his life changed like this. And his problem story and God's solution story sort of um, ran into each other. And um, he, he, said, um, he said something interesting. He said, and just by the way, his mother Monica prayed for him, I think, for about 20 years before he got saved. And even that was part of God's solution story being woven into his problem story from the beginning. And she just kept praying and praying and praying until, until God changed his life. She never gave, gave up on him. Um, so he had this, also the same hunger, the same thirst, and, and, and eventually he was trying to also fill it. Just like the Samaritan woman, you know physical relationships and there's this cute story where where um firstly in, in his in his confessions he, he says something beautiful he, he wrote the books his augustine's confessions he wrote it as a prayer so the whole book is addressed to god and he says this he says you have created us for yourself O god and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you 
You have created us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Exactly what this portion is teaching us. We have a thirst. And anything else that we try and use to quench that thirst in our souls will only inflame that thirst until we come to to God, the source, the spring of living water, and drink from him and have our our thirst quenched. And there's this beautiful, this cute little story, I want to end with this, where, where Augustine, after his conversion, he's, he's walking in a town, and, and, and he, you know, had like girlfriends, mistresses in, you know, sort of all the towns and villages and stuff that he went to. Um, and he was walking through this village, and he, and he, and he walked past um, one of the, the ladies that he used to sort of, you know, used to be his, one of his mistresses. And, and he just walked past her, and, and she greeted him and said, hi, and he said, hi, you know, friendly and so on, and just walked on. And she stopped and turned around and said, Augustine, uh, it, it is I. And he said, I know, but it is not I. Lord God, we just thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate, Lord, the fact that your story has come to swallow up our stories. And we pray, Lord, like this woman, the Samaritan woman, we will have the, just the gratitude and the excitement and the relief, Lord, to just share it, that we, that, that we will just gush like this woman did, and, and that it will just bubble over from our lives into the lives of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.